Let's open our Bibles this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1. Thank you, Daniel and Matthew and Newell, for your service to the church in our worship leading to this moment. Amen. You may open to 2 Peter chapter 1. Our goal is to return to our expositional study of the epistle to the Romans. But in order to do that wisely, since we are come to the first verses of Romans 10, I want to make a review of the doctrine of salvation so that we can look at those words without so much mental grief that's been caused by so many false teachers of the Arminian persuasion. And so let's ask a few questions of the Arminians from the Word of God and see if we can't comfort ourselves in rightly dividing the Word of Truth against all of their confusion and heresy. Lord, help us to that end. An Arminian is more or less a believer of the synergistic semi-Pelagian heresy of James Arminius. James Arminius is a man that lived from 1560 to 1609 in Holland, and he opposed the state church, which was Calvinistic of the Dutch, and he wrote five reasons that he disagreed with Calvinism, and that resulted in the five responses from that government and their theologians, which we call the five points of Calvin, and we're far beyond those five points. If anybody wants to give us a name, you can associate us with some of the high Calvinists of England and of the Dutch that were far beyond John Calvin and his modified Arminianism, in our opinion. And Arminian, when I say synergistic, that means God and man works together. There's synergy between the two of them that result in salvation. We are monergistic, meaning there's only one working for our salvation. It's God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Ghost, because we believe in one God. In modern times, well, let me see, I also mentioned semi-Pelagian. Before Arminius, in 1560, there was Pelagius, a Welsh monk in the 4th century that taught that man could save himself and had within him a totally free will that was not destroyed by Adam's fall. There was no such thing as original sin, and so we had Arminians as early as Pelagius, because There has been a false teacher behind them all that has wanted to detract from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and give that glory to man. And so we deny them all. Pelagius, Arminius, and those modern teachers of their form of doctrine, Charles Finney and D.L. Moody and Billy Graham and Jack Hiles. If you were to look and do a little bit of research, and I will provide you links to make it simple for you, and see how degenerate and confused and profane these men are when it comes to salvation. For instance, and this is not my subject for this morning, for instance, and I have told you this before, but it is hard to comprehend, the most serious, or one of the most serious controversies among conservative Arminian Christians today is the lordship controversy. The lordship controversy is this. 
When you invite Jesus into your heart to get saved, as they call it, do you have to invite Jesus in as Lord? The majority say that you do not. Because if you have to invite Jesus into your heart as Lord, you are adding works to grace. Even in their scheme. That you only need to accept Jesus as Savior. If you add beyond Jesus as Savior, you're adding works to the doctrine of salvation. Repentance is entirely forbidden to be saved. Or it is salvation by works. This is the lordship controversy among Arminians. Whole books have been written on this subject. It's a raging controversy because there are a few Arminians that understand that easy believism is wrecking havoc in their churches with so many unregenerate professors in their membership. But it's their theology. It's not their methods. They need to back up and find out how wrong they are about how a man is saved in the first place. It's not by his decision. But notice, they have watered down the decision and watered down the decision and watered it down until just accept Jesus as Savior. Don't make Him Lord. Don't talk about Him being Lord of your life. And you don't have to add repentance to it. But when I look in the Bible, and I will get back to this subject at some other time, when the men and there was there was Jews in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost that said, "Men and brethren, what shall we do?" Right. And what was the answer? And Peter said unto them, "Repent." Amen. Anyway, these are Arminians. Oh, once you start down the road of error, where will it end? That's right. Once you start with the assumption that baptism is necessary for salvation, where will it end? in intrauterine baptisms of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's not even an end, because they go beyond that with the baptism of desire. As long as you wanted to be baptized, you are baptized. And on and on it goes in the Roman Catholic scheme of things. Historical Arminians were more honest and consistent than the decisionless of today, but we're going to use the name Arminian. We, we do not mean Armenian. I get lots of emails, and sometimes I've seen it locally. We are not opposing Armenians. Armenians are the two or three million that live in a country to the west of, to the east of Turkey in Eurasia. Arminian is someone who follows James Arminius and believes that man has a free will. He's not totally depraved, that Jesus died to pay for the sins of all men, and all he has to do is appropriate them by faith, and he might lose his salvation in the end, is a true Arminian. But the ones today are close enough that we call them Arminians. It's just that the older ones are more consistent. If the new ones want to complain about the name, it's because they're less consistent. But we're going to apply it to them anyway, because they would call us Calvinists and we're not. They can call us hyper-Calvinists, and they're closer. They can call us high-Calvinists, and they're yet closer. But they're still not all the way there. These sermons are to remind us how and why we interpret the book of Romans the way we do as we come back to the 10th chapter here shortly. You cannot rightly interpret an individual text of the Bible without understanding all that the Bible has to say about that subject. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, it says regarding the Word of God... 
the prophecy of the scriptures, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. So in order for us to properly understand Romans 10, we have to make a review of what the Bible teaches about salvation so that we can rightly divide those verses and you do not feel that they are being rested or twisted or used for our own doctrine. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, it says that we are to compare spiritual things with spiritual. So we compare many different things before we go back to Romans 10 and lay it straight for our understanding. These questions could be multiplied indefinitely, but uh, I think we have enough to satisfy the purpose of our study this morning. If Arminians could ask good questions and hard questions, I hope that you would be able to answer them consistently. That means all of your answers match up and fit together, and only with the Bible. We don't want to make up anything like the age of accountability, which they make up, to cover their conditional scheme of salvation. We don't want to invent anything. We want to go with strictly, thus saith the Lord. In ourselves, we are nothing. It is all of grace and all of God's mercy and all of God's will and His purpose, His own purpose, as 2 Timothy 1.9 called it, that we are saved. And it's all of Him that we have any understanding of the truth of that salvation. Both the salvation and the understanding of it are all of grace. And we give God all the glory. Any sarcasm this morning or in the sermons to follow is intended. But if it's too much for you, listening audience, wherever you might be and whenever you might hear it, forgive us for being like Elijah. If you were to read 1 Kings chapter 18, you will find Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal And the Bible says that we are subject to like passions as Elijah. So if my Elijah passion gets away from me, forgive me in the name of Elijah. I don't mind that name. The greatest man that was born of women was John the Baptist, and he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. I hope that you'll recall Paul's dogmatic refutation of the Jewish legalists. Look with me at Galatians chapter 1, and let's remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul has also given us a pattern for dealing with error. Though those errors were coming out of the city of Jerusalem and had been held by some of the converted Pharisees, so-called conversion, in the church at Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, these are Paul's words as he deals with the Arminians of his day. And they were Jewish legalists. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. They are not the same gospel, and you have to remove yourself from the true gospel to believe a false. Verse 7, which is not another But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. There's really only one gospel. And it's the true gospel. The apostle would say in verse 8, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. 
As we said before, in case you've forgotten it in two seconds of transition, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. This is the truth of God's word in Galatians 1. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians. This is the apostle to the churches of Galatia. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. I provided all the evidence you needed to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe the truth of that gospel. Who has bewitched you, you foolish Galatians, that you have departed from that gospel? Chapter 5. Verse 1, stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. If you lay anything to the charge of God's elect, whether it be faith or works, and faith out of a sinner dead in trespasses and sins is the greatest work of all. To try to elicit that from a man who hates God and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, and who is at enmity against God, and who in his flesh cannot please God. You're going to elicit faith from such a man? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold... I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. The falling from grace here is falling from the proper understanding of the doctrine of grace. Because it also says they are justified by the law, but we know that no man is justified by the law except in their own minds. They thought they were justified by the law, but thinking they were justified by the law meant that they no longer had a proper understanding of the true doctrine of grace, which is the basis for our salvation. Now it says that Christ shall profit you nothing in the second verse. That is, if you add anything to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ doesn't profit And I say that to all Arminians, and we've said it many times. If God loved and Christ died, and the Spirit convicts all men equally, then what makes the difference between those in hell and those in heaven? That's a question for you Arminians. Christ doesn't make the difference. God doesn't make the difference. The Holy Spirit doesn't make the difference. Men make the difference. Christ has become of none effect. Because most that he died for are paying for their own sins in the regions of hell. Look at verse 12. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 12. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. Here's how an apostle would talk about the Arminians of his day. What does he mean by that verse? I wish they were dead. These false teachers corrupt so many and take away the joy of the true salvation of God that Paul said, I would they were cut off that trouble you. That is the false teachers. If you come over a few pages to Philippians chapter 3, listen to Paul in all of his gentleness and meekness of Jesus Christ address the Jewish legalists in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2. Here's how he words it. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. 
Beware of the concision. Ooh, that last one was nasty. You say, I, I thought the first one was nasty. Beware of dogs is pretty bad, but beware of the concision is bad as well. These people prided themselves on their circumcision, but the apostle didn't talk about cutting in a circle. He just called it with a bunch of cutting. They're body mutilators. And so he makes fun of their religion. We've got Elijah in the Old Testament, the apostle Paul in the New Testament. Please, any sarcasm is intended. Let's go to the subject that we must always go to first when we are reviewing the doctrine of salvation or when we are discussing it with anyone. And if you try to circumvent this route or short-circuit it, you are not going to be successful. This is where you must go. This is where Arminians should go. And that is to the doctrine of total depravity. We go to sin. We go to the condition of man by nature. We go to the carnal mind. We find out what a fleshly man is truly like before the grace of God comes to that man. That is where you must start. And so, when we read Romans 10, or we read any passage of Scripture, you need to keep in mind what condition is man in prior to God's saving grace in his life. What condition is he in? So we have some questions. The Arminians typically believe this. Though morally hurt, in the Garden of Eden, man is is sick. He is not entirely bad, and he has a free will to choose to obey or disobey God. Sin has not destroyed his ability or his desire to cooperate with God for his salvation. That is what Armenians typically believe. Of course, we could spend 15 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes and quote them over and over again to try to arrive at the evidence for that. But if you've been around Arminians, you know what I just said is true. They believe that man is morally hurt. He's morally sick. By sin, Adam's sin in Eden. And that he has a sick sin nature. But he's not entirely bad. And he has a free will that is still able to choose or disobey God. Choose to obey or choose to disobey. Sin hasn't destroyed his ability and desire altogether. So he can still cooperate with God. We ask this as we turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we ask, Who was the first Arminian to teach that Adam's sin in Eden did not bring spiritual death to Adam and all men? We ask, Who is the first teacher to teach contrary to the God of heaven. Because the God of heaven said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Who is the first Arminian to teach contrary to that, that man is not truly, spiritually dead. Because it says in that day. So we understand that it is not speaking of physical death primarily. It is speaking of another death. And there was a death that took place that day. And that death was the death of Adam's desire and Adam's ability toward God. From that point on, Adam hid in the trees of the garden, tried to cover his guilt and shame by his own methods, and blamed God for giving him Eve that led him to sin. Now that sounds very familiar with men today. And so we should understand that Adam died and we're all dead. Just by thinking a little tiny bit. 
But who's the first Arminian? I want to give honor to an old man that's no longer here in this world. He's in heaven. It's Brother Leon Carnell's father, Clarence Carnell. Every time I got to see the old man, I mean that in the most respectful terms. When I got to see the old man in his latter years, he wanted to tell me, do you know what? Those Arminians today are doing nothing but teaching the same lie of the devil from the Garden of Eden. Remember that, brother? I appreciate that. He'd been taught who the first Arminian was, the devil himself. When you try to show them from the Bible that man is truly dead, oh no, he's not truly dead, he's sick, he's still got a free will. Well, what in the world died in Adam? We ask you, Arminians, what died? If he still has a free will, what died? Men that are dead are not very free to do anything that involves life. If we come to chapter 3, and we don't need to do this because you know what's in chapter 3, the first six verses, it tells us that the devil himself, that old serpent, and Satan is the first Arminian preacher. He's the first one that said, Thou shalt not surely die. He changed the doctrine of God. He changed the doctrine of salvation because no longer does it take what it really takes to save a man. Because they believe that with therapy, with rehabilitation, with an invitation, with medicine, they can cure the man. But the man is dead. Sinners are dead. Why in agreement with Eden, that is the Garden of Eden, does the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were all dead in trespasses and sins? This, these are verses that you need to remember so that you can rightly divide the word of truth. I want to help you understand Romans 10 and 11 and 4 and 3 and other places in the book of Romans by thoroughly remembering what we believe about salvation. Some of you have not heard it that many times and we all need to hear it again. I heard so much Arminianism in my life that I need to review these things and I review them with great joy. And it brings back my first love and first joy of hearing the truth of God's sovereign grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, And you hath he quickened. And, what in the world is and therefore? Because there's another quickening that took place in the end of chapter 1. And that is the quickening of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the word quick mean? The word quick means alive. What does quickened mean? To be made alive. Did Jesus Christ have to be made alive? Unless you want to say he didn't die. Arminian, I'm asking you a question. Did Jesus Christ die? Then he was quickened. And we are quickened the same way, which is why chapter 2 begins with an and. If you were to read the last four verses... Verse 19 of chapter 1, What is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe? According to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That is the quickening of the first chapter and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. And you hath He quickened. There's two quickenings there. And if you're going to say that we're not really dead, that all we need to do is be convicted or influenced by organ music or a prayer band or a motorcycle lock-in, then you're denying that Jesus Christ Himself died. Right. And you hath He quickened who were dead 
in trespasses and sins. Does it sound like the same spirit wrote Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and Ephesians 2? Because in both places, in agreement, it says that men are dead by nature. Wherein in time past, where does it say by nature? Keep reading with me. Wherein in time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We were all in a dead condition. That doesn't mean we were physically dead because Adam lived another 930 years, but he died the day he ate the fruit. He immediately knew he was naked. He was immediately ashamed. He was immediately afraid of God. He was immediately rebellious. He was immediately arrogant and thought he could cover his own guilt and shame without repentance and God's forgiveness. And he blamed God for giving him Eve. I've said these things twice because I want you to understand what died. What died was his desire toward God. What died was his ability toward God to perceive, to appreciate, to love, and to submit to that God. He was now a rebel enemy. He was dead in trespasses and sins. When you read down through those three verses, this man that is dead in trespasses and sins is full of activity. It says, wherein in time past ye walked. Here's a dead man walking. He's dead to God, walking in sin. He's dead to God, walking in trespasses. According to the course of this world, he's following a roadmap given to him in his polluted nature. And that is to follow the course of this world, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself. And the apostle said we all had our conversation in times past. That is our lifestyle in the lusts of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We didn't fulfill anything pleasing to God. It was all sin. It was all trespasses. Right. And so there's agreement between Ephesians 2 and Genesis 2 and 3. Look at Psalm 14. Psalm 14. I want to remind all of you that when you consider the doctrine of salvation, the place we start is to go back and look at the condition of man and what he needs in order to be saved. We don't start out in the middle of God's work of salvation. We start out at the beginning. What condition was man in? What condition is man in before God's grace comes to him? Psalm 14, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together Become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And we could keep on reading, but it's not necessary right now. This is all repeated in Psalm 53, which is the same as Psalm 14. If God loved Adam very much, as you affirm, Arminian, why couldn't God elicit any repentance from Adam? Adam had only sinned once. And it was God approaching him kindly in the Garden of Eden. Why couldn't he elicit any repentance? And you expect us to go out on the sidewalk and deal with men that have sinned a thousand times a day since birth? 
and elicit repentance from them when God couldn't do it with Adam? If natural men are spiritually dead as the Bible declares, what kind of medicine are you going to give them? Arminian? Wouldn't it be great if you had the cure for cancer in a bottle? Take one teaspoon once and you'll be cured of cancer. What good will your bottle do in a cemetery? What good will your bottle of medicine do in a morgue? They're dead. We start there. They don't need an invitation. They need a resurrection. They don't need medicine. They need regeneration. They don't need therapy. They need a new birth. They need a new creation. And that's what God gives them. That's what God gives when it says, And you hath he quickened. God is able to bring to life that which is dead. And how does he bring it to life? By giving us a new man that loves God. That loves righteousness. That hates wickedness. And so we live the schizophrenic life of loving God and hating God in our two natures. And we put down the one and we put on the other. And we choose to walk after God with the power of the new man that is given to us by God's resurrecting, regenerating new creation. If a new birth, if a resurrection, if a regeneration, or if a new creation is needed, how much does the sinner help get that job done? How much did he help in the first birth? How much does he help in the second birth? And I'll tell you, the second birth is a whole lot harder than the first birth. Listen, junkyard dogs procreate, but who can regenerate? Only God, our Father. He can speak the word live, and incredible things happen. As you can read in Ezekiel chapter 16. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and I know that some of you would have read this last evening. In preparation, Romans chapter 3. We need to read a passage here, and you need to come up with a number, Arminian. We need a number. How many in this passage want to get saved and accept Jesus as their personal Savior? I start with verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. This is Jews and Gentiles being compared. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, and now the quotation comes from Psalm 14 that I just read to you, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace Have they not known there is no fear of God before their eyes? 
That is what the Bible says about man. That is what God says about man. That is the gospel we had better preach about man. Now we need to get that number, Arminian. How many want to get saved and accept Jesus Christ as Lord from that passage? If they ever say that they want to, they're lying because it says they're liars and their mouths are filled with lies. Arminian, is understanding involved in accepting Jesus as Savior? Forgive me, Arminian, if I said Jesus is Lord, because I know you reject His Lordship, because you want to make it so easy that even your parrot can get saved. Is understanding involved in accepting Jesus as Savior? Well, according to verse 11, how many are capable of it? Romans 3.11 says, there is none that understandeth. So you can try to tell them how to understand, but they can't understand and they won't understand. And I ask you again, is understanding part of accepting Jesus as Savior? Do you need to understand something about His life and His death and His resurrection from the grave and the cross of Calvary? Do you need to understand something? It says, there is none that understandeth. How many seek after God? If you're going to go out and look for those that are seeking to get saved, how many are there? In the same verse. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. That is the condition of man. They do not seek after God. They may seek after their idea of God, but not the God of the Bible. They may seek after their idea of heaven, but not the heaven of the Bible. The God and the heaven of the Bible are holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. It's not the place where those kind of men want to go. They're walking according to the course of this world. How successful will you be in soul winning if you're looking for natural men that are seeking after God? There aren't any. Is believing on Jesus Christ something good, Arminian? Is believing on Jesus something good? There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So if you're going to admit that it's good, then none do it. Do you want to try admitting that it's bad? You're going to catch yourself coming and going every time you open your mouth, Arminian. Because you've started off with a false assumption that man is not dead in trespasses and sins. That actually inside of man is a free will that still has the desire toward God that if you'll just present the gospel to him, he'll get excited about it, invite Jesus into his heart, and get saved. I know, and I say it with sarcasm because you don't even know what the word means. You have never rightly divided the word of truth. So you think that the word saved just means saved. That we need to get saved. But if you were to read the Bible, you would find all sorts of different phases of salvation. And they need to be divided. And they need to be divided rightly in order for you to come to an understanding of this great subject. Verse 18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. So how many actually do fear God? 
None. There is no fear of God. So how will you motivate them? How will you entice them? How will you persuade them? There is no fear of God. It's the whole duty of man to fear God and to keep His commandments. But there is no fear of God before their eyes. Arminian, if we find a man that fears God, what does that tell us about him? That he's already saved in some respects, which is why he fears God. Because it must be the result of God's grace in his life. It is not the condition for his grace. And while he doesn't fear God, you are helpless at manipulating him toward anything but a false profession. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Decisional regeneration. Make a decision for Jesus and you can be saved. What part of a person makes the decision for Jesus? I want to address these sinners rightly. Is it their carnal mind? Carnal mind. If you want to go to heaven, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. Carnal mind. Is it the flesh? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Flesh. Do you want to get saved? Romans chapter 8 verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Point one of this verse. For it is not subject to the law of God. Point number two. Neither indeed can be. Point three. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Point four. Four things said about natural man. Here, the word natural man is not used. That's in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Here it's the carnal mind and the flesh. And a carnally minded man in the flesh... A man who's not saved is at enmity against God. He is a God-hater. He is a rebel, like Adam was in the Garden of Eden. He is not subject to the law of God. He will not bow down. He will not humble himself. He will not embrace God's commandments to keep them. He can't be such because he's at war with all of God's commandments and he's in love with fulfilling the desires of his flesh and of his carnal mind. As Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 told us, so then we can draw a conclusion because of the enmity, the total death of desire toward God, and because of the inability to submit himself to God's commandments and ordinances for his life, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So how will you address a man in the flesh to get him saved, Arminian? Are you going to suggest that he do something that displeases God in order to get saved? We may give you some hope on that front. Because to ask him to do something that pleases God is beyond his ability or his desire. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. If the carnal and fleshly man is enmity against God, is not subject to God's law, can't be subject to it, and cannot please God... How much do such men want to get saved and accept Jesus as their Savior? 
What a wonderful, what a wonderful book we have. Amen. As long as we rightly divide it. Do you, we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, that we have within us that dead man that walks in trespasses and sins, don't we? We all know that everything God is saying about us by nature is true because we fight with it every single day. And if it wasn't for God's grace having quickened us in our lives and by constantly pursuing us and by the Holy Spirit convicting us, we'd be filling ourselves with the desires of the flesh and of the carnal mind. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Verse 43, why do ye not understand my speech? Jesus says to the Jews, even because ye cannot hear my word. Could they hear him? They could hear him audibly. There were noises landing on their audio nerves in their ear. But they couldn't hear him with any understanding because they were dead to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were deaf to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 47, He that is of God heareth God's words. There's only one kind of person I want to preach to, except for those that God brings my way that are the savour of death unto death. I want to preach to those that are already alive, that are already of God, because he that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Now how will you say something to someone who cannot hear because he is not of God, in order to get him to be of God. Arminian, would you help us? That's the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to tell you something, Arminian. Your preaching hasn't ever, on your best day, come up to 1% of his preaching. And he said, why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Now in John 3, 3, it says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Bible says you can't see, and the Bible here says you can't hear. Now I need to ask you, Arminian, are you going to use audio or video methods to save them? What's your favorite? Audio or video? I'm going to combine them into a movie left behind. Well, bless your heart. Just look around and you can see the fruit of that wonderful series. And all the sequels of such confusion and lies from a few pages of Scripture. Oh, Tim LaHaye is going to have to answer for all that mess. Audio video doesn't work at all. There's never been a soul saved by the Left Behind movie series. Jesus said that unless you're of God, you can't hear. Unless you're born of God, you can't see. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord hath made them both. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 11. And we give him all the glory for that. Look at John chapter 3, Arminian. John chapter 3, I'm sure that page is worn thin in your Bible. Because you don't rightly divide, you don't even divide. You think there's only one verse in the Bible you need to know anyway. And how how can you divide one verse? And that's your John 3.16. John chapter 3 and verse 19. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, 
that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So, Arminian, how are you going to present the light, Jesus being the light of the world, to men that love darkness? The only ones that are ever going to accept Jesus Christ as being the light of the world are those that have their deeds wrought in God and are already doing the truth. They'll come to the light. So your light does not work them in God or do God's work in them. God has already done His work in them and that is why they come to the light. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.14, Arminian. It talks here about the natural man. And your goal is to get the natural man to be a spiritual man. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 identifies your difficulty, Arminian. Here I read it to you. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Here's the situation, Arminian. A man that has not yet been saved, a man not born again, is purely a natural man. He doesn't have a spiritual nature, as verses 15 and 16 describe about the other category of the human race. This natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And we are talking about them being preached by the Apostle Paul in this chapter. And if you're a preacher, Arminian, on your best day, you are never 1% of what the Apostle Paul could do with his persuasive ability. But the Apostle Paul said, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Though the Spirit of God inspired Paul and blessed him to preach the Word of God, the natural man wouldn't receive it because they're foolish, it's foolishness to him. He thinks it's all a joke. It's ridiculous. Neither can he know them. He doesn't have the ability to know them because he's lacking the spiritual capacity to discern and perceive that he is hearing spiritual, invisible, eternal truth. So how are you going to get him saved? Tell me how you're going to get him saved. What will he do every time with the gospel? He'll reject it. It's foolishness. He won't receive it. He can't know it. He can't appreciate it. It doesn't matter how well you present it. It didn't matter how well Jesus presented it. It didn't matter how well Paul presented it. This is what a natural man does when he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And verse 17. Paul said the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. You have these two enemy forces in you when you're born again. You have the new man influenced by the spirit of God. You have the old man influenced by the devil himself. And these two are contrary, the one to the other. They lust against each other, and they're fighting a war. But we're not talking about a saved man. I'm taking you, Arminian, to this verse to remind you of what your flesh is really like. 
It's at enmity against God. It's at war against God. It's lusting against God. How will you persuade it? Even when a man is born again, he can't do everything perfectly like he would like to do. How are you going to get a man that's not born again to ever do anything he should do? According to this text. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The apostle asks those in Thessalonica to pray for him and for his fellow ministers that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. If men without faith are unreasonable, Arminian, how will you entice them or persuade them to please God by faith? How will you do it? If men without faith are unreasonable, how will you reason with them to do something to get faith? Look at Psalm 10. Psalm 10. Whenever you look at a verse that's about salvation in the Bible, there is a process to go through, and that process begins with understanding the condition of man before salvation. We start with total depravity and we don't start with it because it's the tea of tulip. We start with it because that's where Paul started in the book of, of Romans. Romans chapter 1, he talked about men and them rejecting the knowledge of God that was in the natural creation and how God rewired them and turned them over to reprobate minds. We go to chapter 3 where it quotes from numerous places in Psalms and Isaiah about the depravity of man. That's why we start there. Let's start with what needs to be saved before we try to pontificate about how they are saved. We don't care what order TULIP is in. TULIP is not our doctrine, theology, nor confidence of our everlasting life. Psalm 10 verse 4. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. If man through pride never seeks or thinks about God, Arminian, how will you get him to do both? I'll have a praise band. I'll use the world's syncopated backbeat rhythm at very high levels and a casual environment with a couple cups of Starbucks coffee under his belt. I'll get him. Well, the Word of God says that through the pride of his countenance, he will not seek after God. If you offer him something and he seeks after it, it's because you're offering him something other than the God of the Bible, other than the religion of the Bible. And that's why he is seeking after it. Because God, the God of the Bible, is not in all his thoughts. You say, well, I'm going to clothe them. I'm going to find those that are naked and clothe them. I'm going to find those that are hungry and feed them. I'm going to find those that don't have a place to live and put them in an orphanage. I'm going to find those that are sick and give them medicine. Oh, Arminian, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 26, where God heard about your schemes of rehabilitation of these sinners. They don't need rehabilitation. They need regeneration. Amen. 
They don't need therapy. They need a new birth. They don't need an invitation. They need a creation. A new creation. That's what it's called in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 10. Arminian, this is what God has to say of your do-good socialistic ideas of doing favor toward the wicked. Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. It doesn't matter where you take a sinner, you can't take the sinfulness out of the sinner. You can take a pig away from his wallowing, but he's going to wallow again. You can take a dog away from his vomit, but as soon as he can vomit, he'll eat it again. And this verse tells us right here that we cannot rehabilitate sinners, nor can we influence them by showing favors to them, by feeding them or clothing them. That doesn't change a man's heart. If someone confesses Jesus as Savior and invites Jesus into their heart because you fed them, gave them drink, clothed them, gave them a house, brought them to America, or healed their sicknesses... They're just doing it to get more of the same. That's not a transformation of the heart. Something needs to change the heart first. The heart is lustful. If it knows that it has a free lunch, if they say, I love Jesus, they're going to tell you, I love Jesus three times a day. Why are you so foolish? I won't do favors toward him. I'll just show him the power of God. Well, then let's turn to Luke 16 where Abraham and the Lord Jesus Christ cut you off at the pass, Arminian. What are you going to do? You're going to build up and work up the most persuasive, impressive, powerful, audio-visual presentation of something. You're going to find someone that has died and, and come back and you're going to have their testimony And oh, I'm sure it's good because they've repeated the same thing in 50 to 1,000 churches before your church. So I'm sure they've got it down pat. And they're going to give a testimony of how they died. And you're going to get someone to come back from the dead and tell what the difference is between heaven and hell. And that's how you're going to persuade men? Well, that would be a lie to begin with. But what if you had the opportunity to have someone that did come back from the dead. Here's what Abraham had to say about it. This poor rich man in hell, he's begging Father Abraham in verse 27 that Father Abraham would send Lazarus to his five brothers that were on the golf course on Sabbath days who didn't want to go to the synagogue and hear the Word of God read to warn them lest they come into this place of torment. And that it's in verse 28. Verse 29 Abraham and Abraham did care about souls. If you'll remember his praying and his reasoning with God for ten righteous souls in the city of Sodom. But I want you to notice that he was smart enough in the doctrine of theology and soteriology, that's the doctrine of salvation, that he begged God for ten righteous souls. There wasn't any prayer on Abraham's part for another person in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He called them wicked and he understood they ought to burn. 
Didn't we have that read to us from Psalm 68 today about dipping our feet in the blood of the wicked? I'm not trying to sound morbid beyond Scripture. I want to be as honest as Scripture is. Abraham didn't have a prayer for a single other soul, and God and His angels didn't have a prayer for a single other soul. But now it's Father Abraham who does care about righteous souls. And this is how he answers the rich man in hell who wants to save his five wicked brothers who are not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, who consider the things of the Spirit of God to be foolishness unto them. Abraham saith unto him in verse 29, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets are going to tell about the the jealousy of God and the vengeance of God and how they ought to keep the law of God. They have Moses and the prophets. They're being preached every Sabbath day. Why aren't they in church? And the rich man said in verse 30, Nay, Father Abraham, they just don't get moved by the word of God. Preaching just doesn't cut it for them. They can't endure sound doctrine. They want fables and entertainment and a praise band. They want casual and contemporary worship with Starbucks coffee. Father Abraham, that won't work. If one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he, that is Abraham, said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I've seen all kinds of gimmicks. All kinds of gimmicks to get people to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, to invite Jesus into their heart. But the true Jesus of the Word of God is not loved or sought after by anyone unless God has changed their heart. That is what comes first. When we deal with anyone about the doctrine of salvation, when we ourselves are reading the Word of God and we come upon a verse that sounds oh so Arminian, remember, the first place you go is what does the Bible teach about the condition of man before God's grace? Is he capable... Is he desirous of doing anything pleasing God? No and no is the answer from the Bible. Arminian, in light of the above, in light of what we've just covered, what do you think is the best way to present Jesus to get men to receive him? If it's an honest Arminian, he's going to say there is no way. God would have to change him first. And then we would say, Amen. Thou art not far from the kingdom of heaven. Arminian, can you see that God had to initiate and perform a creative, regenerative operation of grace to save you or anyone else? Amen. Do we know that about ourselves? Does the Bible testify about it? That God found us dead in trespasses and sins and quickened us together with Christ by the same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. Amen. Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. Praise His glorious name. Amen. And so it's our responsibility now to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Amen. By nature, so then they that are in the flesh 
cannot please God. After the spiritual regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, we are able to please God because He's worked in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And it is our job with fear and trembling to work out that salvation that He worked in. May the Lord bless us to do that. And brethren, this is necessary for us to take positions on Romans 10 and Romans 11 that are held by a very, very few, but to solidly believe that we are rightly dividing those verses so we have backed up today and we're going to back up a few more times to remind us of the large perspective of the Word of God and what it teaches about salvation so that we may go through Romans 10 and Romans 11 unencumbered by Arminian drivel. Lord, help us. We love you and we thank you for saving us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.